0: Welcome to Convos on the Couch from Lifestance Health, where each episode, you'll hear engaging informative conversations with leading mental health professionals that will help guide you on your journey to leading a healthier, more fulfilling life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Convos on the Couch by Lifestance Health. I'm Nikki Lianza, And on today's episode, I'll be talking with Jay Swanson, a clinician from one of our Philadelphia, Pennsylvania offices, and we'll be having a conversation about helping kids deal with grief. So welcome, Jay. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. This is really a significant conversation for us to be having because we know it's so important to talk to about, you know, talking to kids, adolescents about grief and loss. So I'm really appreciating that we're having this conversation today absolutely and let's speak. let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself yes um I'm Jay
1: um I use they then pronouns I live and work in Philadelphia I've lived in Philly for about 13 years I have a background in music therapy um and I'm also a licensed professional counselor in PA and I spent the last 10 or so years, mostly in hospice work. Um, So I have a lot of experience with hospice and terminal illness. And in the last six years, working with kids um, who are grieving the loss of a loved one.
0: So you definitely bring to the table lots of experience with this topic. And and it definitely sounds like one of your specialties.
1: Absolutely. Yep. And it's a very under talked about, um, yet very common um, thing.
0: Right, right. No, I agree, which again is why it's so important that we're having this conversation to help guide others, caretakers, parents, whoever have children or adolescents in their life to talk about this. So to get us started, you know, let's start with, you know, what does grief look like in children and adolescents? And I I get developmentally, it might look different in children and adolescents, but you can take it from however you want to divide that. So,
1: yeah, um, I'll talk developmentally in a little bit, um, but for now, just kind of focusing more narrowly on how does grief show up in kids, Hi. Um, which is surprisingly not all that different from how it might show up in adults, um, except that, you know, kind of depending on age, kids have less of a filter. Um, kids are more likely to respond kind of naturally and immediately. So what's happening, especially younger than say 12. Um, But what they need and how how we approach working with kids is not that different from working with adults. So I wanted to talk about two specific models that I really um, think are valuable. One is uh, from 1985, um, someone whose last name is Fox, and he talks about the four tasks um, for bereaved children. Um, which does, these are not supposed to necessarily happen in any order and just like anything with grief we're going to go we're going to do one thing and maybe it's going to be less the next day and we're going to do the next thing and come back to the first thing so no necessarily not necessarily in order but the four tasks are to understand and make sense of the loss make sense of what happened how it happened um, the second is express reactions to the loss in some constructive way. So. You know, that can be just talking, that can be emoting, that can be um, using different expressive like arts modes. Um, The third task, learning how to keep on living and learning how to keep on loving other people. Um, And the fourth task is commemorating that life that was lived. And that is something that you can do, especially as a child, you're going to maybe do that for a very long time to come over the course of your whole life. Um, so learning how to do that and learning that it's okay to do that at a young age is really important and will help kids in their adult life when they have to, of course, like have another loss in their life. Um, and then another model, which is more common with also adults, is the is called the dual process model. Um, Stove and Shoot are the authors of this, I think, in the starting in the late 90s. And the dual process model is the idea that in grief, we oscillate between loss-oriented modes of being and restoration-oriented modes of being. Um, Loss-oriented meaning actually really grieving and mourning and maybe experiencing tearfulness or anger, um, being in counseling, doing memorial services, um, any kind of commemoration. And restoration-oriented is having to do your daily living tasks, Um, maybe sometimes having to do some of the tasks that that deceased person used to do. learning how to love other people and continuing relationships with other people, um, rebuilding a different life that you're now going to be living without that person. And we're going to naturally oscillate between all those things within, in the beginning, it might be within like an hour or minutes that you're oscillating. And as you move forward in grief, you might spend more time in restoration oriented, Um, but your whole life, you're going to spend some time in loss oriented and that's normal.
0: And I think you're bringing up such a good point because I think people think they you just move through stages of grief just very linearly, and and that's not the case at all. And I like how using that word oscillating. I think that's very important for people to understand. Exactly. Yeah. A
1: lot of people have kind of tuned into the Kubler-Ross model, which yeah. um, does. I don't know if she intentionally wanted people to think about it linearly, but right. people do. Right. Um, and then they feel like they're failing if they don't yeah. meet those tasks.
0: Yeah. So that's why I like the the task that you brought up, the four tasks with, with the first model there. I think that's, I really think that it really gives people a good idea of guidance. Both models are, are very good, but I, I like the idea with the tasks so of kind of like, what are we working on as we're grieving through this process, you know? Yeah, it's a good model for a therapist. Yeah, oh, for sure. Good guidance them. for us, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, others. So can you give us some specific tics, tips and how to talk to kids about uh, death and dying. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of adults
1: um, have an instinct to protect kids from things like death and dying because right. understandably um, we're concerned that it's too much for them. They'll be overwhelmed. We want them to keep their kind of like innocence. However, um, kids know what's going on most of the time regardless of what we say or don't say. And when we don't say things, we're we're showing number one, like there's something bad about talking openly about this, right? And then number two, if kids don't know what's happening, they sometimes or even most of the time will imagine something worse, um, which can lead to like a lifetime of anxiety. So helpful to be very transparent um, in a developmentally appropriate way, right? So kids who are under two really have no concept of death and dying, but they will feel the loss in their own way. They will feel the emotions of other people around them. Um, and so you might see that impacting them in terms of their own moods and their own like needs and things like that, and that's normal. Um, ages two to five, you can, that's when you can already start using the words death and dying, and, and we recommend using those words. Um, otherwise, it can be very confusing. So, for example, if you say, like, grandma went to sleep and she's never going to wake up. Right. That's going to make a child maybe scared to go to sleep. Right, right. Right. Or even um, that she just she went to heaven. Well, why did she go to heaven? Why did she make that choice? Why can't I go there with her? Why can't she come back? Gotcha. So being tra- straightforward about grandmother died, her body right. stopped working. Um, She cannot come back. And then if you believe in heaven or or have religious beliefs, then you can certainly use them. But that being the first thing you say can be confusing. Ages two to five, they're going to have a harder time understanding the permanence of death. Yeah. So kids that age are going to need a lot of reminders um, that the person isn't coming back. And that can be really hard, especially if you're also grieving the loss of an adult. Um, or if you're a therapist and you feel like you're, this kid should know this by now but and, and you're working on it, but they just need a lot of reminders. And over time, as they see that the person's not coming back, they'll start to understand that. Um, ages six to nine, there's more of an emerging understanding of death and what that means. Um, something that can come up around that age is fear about their other loved ones dying um, or their own self dying. Um, so they might it's beneficial if they can talk about those feelings
0: and that it's normal for them to be feeling like that. I think normalizing that I think sometimes kids bringing that up might make the the caregivers around them get even more worried like, oh, my gosh. And and it's to kind of a reminder that might be just a natural worry that they're going to have. It's a normal, typical worry. So. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Very, very common. Um, for kids ages 9 to 12, that's when they can really start to understand the, that death is final and irreversible. Um, and then 13 and up, they're going to be thinking more about future implications of the death. So thinking about, they're not going to be at my wedding or my graduation, um, things like that. And in starting around age 9 and up, um, you start to see kids maybe even thinking about it somehow their fault. Um, and again, normal and something that they need to be able to talk about so they can actually process through. Um, and just again, constant reminders that you know it's not their fault. They don't have that much power and talking about what actually happened so they can see that more tangibly. Um, other things to keep in mind um, as an adult caregiver, or even as a therapist, showing your own emotion about someone dying is okay. Um, in fact, it models an appropriate response to grief. Um, and kids can see if you are hiding your emotions and not expressing them and then get a message that that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Um, but as we all know, especially as clinicians, like if we hold up, uh, holding all those emotions in lead to problems. Yeah, sure. Um, and then another thing is, is, you know, for caregivers and if we as therapists are counseling caregivers, Offering kids choices around things like attending the funeral, maybe participating in the funeral. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, If we're approaching someone dying, like, are they, do they want to see them? How much do they want to see them? Um, Again, that's a really, when you're talking about visiting, really being transparent about what that person looks like before that kid knows what they're walking into. Right. Um, And the kids can choose what they feel comfortable with. If a kid absolutely doesn't want to attend a funeral, that's okay. But most times they do. Um, And sometimes parents think it's protective or caregivers think it's protective to not let them go to the funeral when actually that sometimes that can lead to long time resentment.
0: Right. I've worked with a lot of individuals who maybe when they were younger uh, was kept away from the funeral or just even allowed to speak about the person who had passed and how that still plays out that it maybe even inhibited their own grieving process too. So it's definitely, Mm -hmm. I think the more openness and then the autonomy you can, I think the more autonomy you can give kids to choose, do you want to go? Do you not? Do you want to see, do you want to go up and visit the body? If it's, if it's a showing things like that is so key that you're bringing up for sure.
1: Absolutely and and giving them a sense of some control over something,
0: yeah, right, in the process for sure, what about so now you brought up some really great tips and how to start those conversations and have those conversations. So what about the actual navigating of the grief for kids and adolescents? Mm-hmm. yeah, so again, not super different for
1: adults and and kids here um. It takes time, um, sometimes a lot of time. Um, not pathologizing it, which the DSM has this new diagnosis that pathologizes grief a little bit, That's which right. you right. know has we have some conflict about that. Um, one of the ways I started to think about how to help kids with grief is looking at a kid's individual personality and looking at a kid. Um, And their tendency to be maybe more introverted or extroverted because kids who are more extroverted will have more of a need to talk about it. And sometimes maybe a lot and sometimes adults feel like they're making other people uncomfortable, but it's actually, it's good for them. They need to talk about it. And in talking about it, they're normalizing talking about it for everyone. Um, But more introverted kids might not want to talk about it as much. and they might benefit more from things like journaling or doing art about it or listening to music, making playlists that maybe give, help them emote or help them think about the person. Um, but in all regards, kids need opportunities to talk about it. So even if you have an introverted kid that you're working with, letting them know constantly that you are there for them, that you, they can ask you questions, that they can tell you how they're feeling, that you want to care for them. Um <clears throat> Things like for introverted and extroverted kids, things like art, um, drawing memories of the people and talking about them can be really nice. Um, especially if a, if a person was sick for a really long time, helping them remember before they were sick again. Um, or things like creating, um, like taking a shoebox and decorating it in honor of the person. And then that's a memory box for the future. Um, Music can be really helpful. Maybe writing songs about the person. Um, again, having playlists about different things that like maybe that person's favorite music. Um, or again, a playlist that you want to listen to when you're feeling sad about the person, a playlist you want to listen to if you actually kind of want to bring yourself out of sadness. Yeah, I um, like the kids,
0: idea of different playlists. That's actually a really great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kids who are
1: musically inclined really benefit from that kind of stuff. Um, my music therapy background, I would do a lot of like music improvisation with kids and have them kind of play out their feelings or even like play a story out about the person. Um, <clears throat> writing, journaling, writing stories about the person, um, things that are physical. Um, so like kids that are feeling a lot of anger about the person might feel like you might start to see that show up in like maybe they're fighting kids at school.
0: Ah,
1: um, okay. So getting them other physical um release forms of release. So like I've had I've had some kids and teens end up taking up boxing and it being super helpful.
0: Yeah.
1: Um kids who are dancers, like kind of dancing it out. And and um I feel like physical movement is like kind of a sideways way to get emotions out and and we want to help them have awareness of that is happening and how it's happening and why. And it's such a healthy way to get stuff out. Um and even things like sports can be really helpful for people um different types of memorializing so like the memory box is an example um creating like a picture so having like a picture of the person and create and decorating a picture frame around it um helping them figure out ways that they might want to memorialize on special days like maybe the anniversary of the death or the person's birthday or the kid's birthday oh Um, yeah they might want to bring the person into their birthday and like in their own way or they might not all that's okay right um I can't say enough like normalizing 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 never minimizing um helping kids understand that grief is gonna kind of come and go probably for a long time
0: yeah
1: um I did work with a lot of kids who had that who had this narrative in their head that they should get over it um sometimes after two months Mm -hmm. and kind of helping them release that narrative because all that's gonna do is make them feel bad about themselves for continuing to grieve. Um, And then peer support is really important. And there are, in Philadelphia, we have a few different resources for um, peer groups for kids who have lost people. Um, Unfortunately, we have such a high rate of gun violence here that we have um, groups for kids who have lost people through gun violence. Um, There are, like overnight summer camps for grieving youth, most of which are free. Oh, wow. Um, So encouraging those opportunities and connecting kids to that kind of thing. Um, Knowing some, some, one of the hardest things about being a kid that's grieving is that they often don't know a lot of other kids who have been through something like this. So connecting them to other kids who have can be Incredibly helpful.
0: oh, i would I would imagine so just how lonely it could feel to think that you're the only one to be able to connect with other kids who maybe experienced very similar feelings about who they lost and stuff exactly. yeah. Shifting gears just a little bit, let's talk about how grief might manifest in different <clears throat> cultural communities. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think about this a lot in terms of um, cultural humility. Um, I'm a white person. I live in Philadelphia, which is, um, a, I guess they don't say it's a majority Black city because it's not over 50%, but there are more Black people than white people or Asian people or Latinx people in the city. Um, and therefore, that meant when I was working with kids in Philadelphia, I was working with about 95% Black families. Um, so it was really important that I put my own stuff in check, that I was really aware of my own stuff. And that includes like how. I grieve. And how do I think it's normal to grieve? Um, So I can speak for my own. I I grew up in the Midwest. and in the Midwest. Midwestern white people. um, I don't want to make a big, too big of a sweeping stereotype, but my family, like we kind of like cover it. And we like kind of keep it quiet and we keep it internal. Um, And so, you know, I don't really accept that anymore, but had I, it might be harder for me. It is still sometimes harder for me, to see people who are grieving really loudly in my mind. Right. So like, um, if I'm seeing a lot of, especially when I was in hospice and working like literally at people's deathbeds, um, I would see a lot of like white nurses, for example, feeling uncomfortable with um, big emotions coming out, um, which is sometimes maybe more common with people who are um, not white because that idea of like keeping things to yourself and keeping things inside is part of whiteness, is yeah. part of like white culture. Right. Um, one of those pretty unhealthy, in my opinion, <laughs> parts of of white cult- culture. So I, I'd like to look at it from that lens rather than like say that like certain cultures of people grieve in certain ways because like nobody's a monolith. Um, so the most important thing is that you're keeping, you're aware of your own stuff so you can refrain from judgment. And you'll know if something is like not okay. Um, it can be, it's going to be pretty obvious if that's true. Um, so I think a lot about like completely trying to avoid any assumptions, right? If you are if you think you know what's going to happen when you walk into a situation, um, especially if you're walking into a family whose culture is not yours, um, you don't know what's going to happen you don't and you got to put that stuff away before you walk in the door um and i also like to to think about how culture will impact grief but it's not going to define grief right like that so
0: mm-hmm.
1: so the ways in which it might impact grief is like different rituals that people will have because of their religions for example um different ways of memorializing people different beliefs about what happens when you die um like I said before, like different ways of emoting, um, which is across all human beings. Um, And then a couple of terms that I, um, I wasn't taught in school. I kind of learned them later, but there are different types of grief that can show up more commonly in um, marginalized communities. Okay. Um, One of those is called disenfranchised grief, which, is defined as like grief that society is kind of denying you.
0: Ah.
1: Um, so an example of that for, in my experience from working with kids, um, like I said, in Philadelphia, we have such a horribly high rate of gun violence and unfortunately impacts black communities um, quite a bit. And I worked with a teenager who lost her friend um, to gun violence. And she was, Grieving him really hard, and she was keeping it to herself because at school, this teenager who was killed was being seen as someone who chose this life for himself and was of the streets and he got what was coming for him. Okay. And so, and those are the words from that she said for being said to her by other people. So she was being denied the right to really grieve him. And it was really important that I provide a really open, contained space for her to feel like she could do that safely.
0: Um,
1: and then another one is ambiguous loss, and that's grieving someone who actually is not dead, um, but maybe they've left your life. Oh, and that's okay. something that I feel like can be very common in the LGBTQ community. For example, um, a, fam- like a parent who doesn't accept you because you're um, somewhere in the LGBTQ spectrum, and while you're angry at them, um, and maybe you have made the final choice to be, to estrange from them, you also are going to experience grief um, for the loss of them and for the fact that they cannot understand you. Um, which maybe, we might not go to grief therapy for that, but, right. but, but we still could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even a breakup. Yeah. Right? Like a really right. bad breakup. No, the person isn't dead, but you might never see them right for ever
0: again like or for the a very long time. Of even the relationship. I mean, Right. Exactly. Exactly. I hear you. Yeah. Any other takeaways you'd like to share when it comes to helping kids deal with grief?
1: I guess I just wanted to share, like, I got to do grief work with kids before COVID then during, like, the major part of COVID and then, like, kind of, like, as we've been changing our attitude towards things. Um, and it was interesting to see how our culture shifted a little bit during that time to, um, cause we can't avoid talking about death when we had a million people dying of COVID right. in our country. Right. Um, and we certainly had more, there was much more of a need for bereavement during that time in Philly. Um, and I was hopeful that there might be a little bit more of a culture shift towards us talking more about death in a public mainstream way. Mm-hmm. And talking about grief in a more public mainstream way, and um, I think that's happened. not you know, it, maybe it, we've kind of like we like to now pretend everything's normal, and maybe that's the metaphor for like how we like to avoid death in our in, in u.s society, but um it was it's just been interesting to see, and right. the need for um, grief and loss counseling right now across the board is yeah. is very high.
0: I agree. I agree 100 percent, which, again, I'm appreciative of this conversation we're having, Jay, and you really shared with us a lot of additional knowledge about helping kids navigate, you know, just talking about death and dying and then how to help them navigate the grieving process. You know, again, so important to have these conversations and and just having the conversations in general more out there within our cultures, too. So I appreciate it this conversation. So thank you again. Love to have you back on sometime. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.